0: This morning we want to talk about a topic that can be particularly tricky at some times because people will take and make of it what they want to make of it. Uh, And So we want to talk this morning about the topic of generosity. I believe that to be a follower of Jesus means we are called to be radically generous. Now, uh, if you're in our community groups, you're going through a lengthy study on generosity, and I pray that that's been meaningful. It's been uh, deeply meaningful for me, and I pray it's been meaningful for you. And I'll steal a little intro intro that Tim Keller uses in that series when he says, most people, when they hear the word generosity, immediately think about money, right? And while generosity certainly speaks to money, it also speaks, I think, to every facet of our lives. And so this is how we need to understand generosity this morning. So when you hear me say generosity, you think I'm going to talk about money, what I want to say to you is two things. One, you're absolutely right. And two, but it's not just that. It's the whole reality of our lives. What does it mean for us to be generous people in light of the gospel? Uh, If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is kind of going to be our foundational passage. We'll do a little bit of jumping, uh, mostly storytelling from other parts of the scriptures. But 2 Corinthians 8 is kind of going to be our launch pad. And I want to start with verse 7. Paul is writing his second. Most scholars believe this is at least his third, if not his fourth letter to the Corinthians. The other ones just didn't survive and make it into the canon of Scripture. Uh, this is a, a church that he is passionate about, but he's also writing to them to help them continually reshape their lives in light of the Gospel. And this is what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich Yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Verse 9 again For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This morning what I want to suggest to you in a very simple statement is that a generous God calls for his people to be a generous people. A generous God calls for his people to be a generous people. And this is exactly what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. He says, listen, you understand that God, though he was rich, became poor so that in his poverty you might become Rich, this is a beautiful summary of the gospel. Now, if you're with us for any length of time at Hope, you know that I'm obsessed with the gospel, right? I talk about it all the time. For me, the whole of Scripture is, is speaking about the gospel. And so this morning, what I wanted to do in the first few moments that we have together is really to clarify what is the gospel. And in so doing, get at the generous heart of God. Now, we took six weeks in telling the full story of God, and it could have taken much longer uh, at the beginning of September and kind of into the, into the fall time. And all of that was to summarize the gospel. The gospel is a huge story, right? But if we really want to get to the core of the gospel, what we understand is that humanity, us included, tend to want to do our own thing. right? We tend to want to go our own way. We tend to think that we can construct a good life for ourselves. And in so doing, far too often, we fail to understand that all of the good things in life actually come from God Himself. And that God created humanity to bless them and to call them into this full life that is a dynamic connection between God and man. And so then God, looking upon humanity, who in every turn, right, from Adam and Eve in the beginning all the way to you and me today, tend to move our own way away from God, tend to determine what is right and what is wrong. And we, therefore, are broken people. Now, you don't have to nod publicly, but can you agree with that in the depth of your own heart that your life is not all that it could be, that your life is broken, that even as good or moral of a person as you may be, that deep down there's a brokenness, there's a fracture, there's a separation between you and the God who created you. And so then we see in God really a choice, right? What does the great and powerful God of the universe do to a humanity whom He created to live in this relationship with Him, but that has gone their own way and finds Himself? Broken, And in that we see the heart of the gospel. That this God, rather than saying, I can't believe you keep doing this, instead is a God who pursues humanity at every turn of the story. And this is ultimately most beautifully known in the reality we're about to celebrate in Christmas. The, The coming of Jesus, God himself, Lying down his divinity so that he could enter into the mess of humanity and ultimately, through his work on the cross, winning a great victory over sin and death, and therefore applying it to anyone who would be joined to him. This is what Paul's saying that God, who was rich, became poor. So that in His poverty, we who are poor might become rich. And for those of you who have known the Gospel and who have known Jesus and who have have been joined to Him, you have experienced what I'm talking about in your life. A whole new way of seeing things. A whole new way of understanding things. And you have seen the generous heart and nature of God. And for those of you who are hearing it for the first time this morning, I pray that it begins to deeply resonate with you and begins to change who you are. There are two foundational passages of Scripture for me. There's there's loads more, but for me, that really speak to the generous heart of God. The first is Exodus 34, verse 6 and Uh, 7. This is sort of like the... The, the passage that often people will go to that speaks of the mercy of God, or the loving kindness of God. It's the great Hebrew word hesed, right? This covenant nature of who God is towards humanity because God had just given the law, the Ten Commandments. Remember? He just given the law to the people who He had just rescued from slavery in Egypt. And when Moses comes down the mountain with the law, God's gracious covenant to them, he finds the people who have built a God for themselves, right? A golden calf, very famously. And Moses smashes the law, and he goes back up to speak to God. And God, in his reckoning with the people, writes the law again. And sends Moses down again. And this time, to a rebellious people, before Moses gives them the law, God speaks audibly in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And he says, first he declares his name to the people. And then he says, The Lord, the Lord your God, is compassionate. He's gracious. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He's slow to anger. He's forgiving rebellion and wickedness and sin to generation after generation. Do you get a picture of the generous heart of God who had rescued this people from certain destruction in Egypt, who had given them a whole way to live and a whole land to live in, and in the moment of their great rebellion in the face of his rescue, he comes and declares who He is. Merciful, loving, faithful, slow to anger. Let me ask you in your life, as an acknowledged broken person, are you grateful for the generous nature of God's mercy? The generous nature of His grace. The generous nature of His love and His faithfulness. The generous nature of His patience with us and His forgiveness. And then in the New Testament, this is one of my favorites, Philippians chapter 2. This is what Paul writes to the church at Philippi about Jesus. He's encouraging them to be united together and he says, hey, the only way this is going to happen is if you kind of look at who Jesus was and model your life around Him. So he says in verse 5 of chapter 2, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. You see this. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place. He's given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see it in stark narrative, the generous nature of God through Jesus. How many of you, living in the perfection of the proverbial heavens, would set it aside, let alone set it aside to enter the brokenness of the world? And not just the brokenness of the world, but a people in exile to another nation, as Jesus did. Knowing that you were coming ultimately to lay down your earthly physical life, too, on a cross. Friends, this is the gospel. That in our brokenness, Jesus has entered in radical generosity. To rescue us. I like to think about it like this. That in the nature of God, every character or attribute of God is a multiplier of all the other attributes of God. Right? So we say things like, God is love. So then every other characteristic of God is also known through his love. Right? So that God is holy, but he's loving in his holiness. So that God is just, but he's loving in his holiness. In his justice. God is omnipresent, but in his being everywhere, he's demonstrating his love. And I think the same is true for his generosity. See, when we define God, we ultimately are not just giving attributes of who he is. We are actually defining the attribute by who God is. Does it make sense? So if you want to know what generosity really is, then rather than look it up in a dictionary, we look to see who God is. If we want to know what love really is, rather than trying to define it or write a paragraph about it, we look to see who God is. And so then, God is love, but he is generous in his love. God is holy, but he's generous in his holiness. And God is omnipresent or omnipotent or all of these great things of who God is, but in all of these ways, he's also demonstrating his generosity with us and this world. So, the story of God's generosity that Paul sums up in this statement in 2 Corinthians 8 is necessarily in a bigger section in which Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to be a giving church, right? He's calling them to generous lifestyles, but he understands that this is not something, his words, that he can command them to do, right? He's not saying, hey, listen, you have to be generous people, otherwise God's going to be upset at you. You have to be giving people, otherwise something really bad could happen to you. He's saying, no, I I can't command you to do anything, what I can remind you is who God is. And on the basis of that, call you to reflect who he is to the world around us. And see, this is Paul's way of thinking. This is why in various other letters that Paul has written, he has used phrases like, I'm calling you to live a life worthy of your calling. Or to live a life worthy of the gospel. At first Blanche. at first kind of reading that, we can think, oh man, God did all these great things and now I've got to go earn it. I've got to go do all these things, otherwise I'm not worthy of it. This is not what Paul's saying at all. What he's saying is, hey, if a generous God has rescued you in a generous gospel way, then you too should be generous people. Why? Because we have been called to bear the image of God. We are created in the image of God. Our ultimate purpose in this world, speak about it to worship God, but ultimately in the wholeness of our life to reflect to the world who God is. And I say this all the time, friends, but reflecting to the world who God is is much more powerfully done in a manner of life than a Sunday sermon. Right, And so Paul's saying, hey, if you have understood who God is, then how could you do anything except be generous people? To do anything less would be to say that God was something less. And friends, this kind of way of living has been God's way the whole story of God. Remember when God creates Adam and Eve and he says, hey, here is the garden. Have dominion over it. Rule over it. These things are under you. And many people will speak to that in an authoritarian way, right? We'll see humanity has been given this authority. They fail to miss the whole point that God has given us something to rule in the way that he would rule it, right? In the way that he would manage it, in the way that he would steward it. Not so that we can be high and mighty and have some kind of earthly management position over creation, but so that we, to the world, would bear the image of God and it would be multiplied. This is why when God calls Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless you abundantly, and you're going to bless the world. It has always been this way. A generous God calls his people to be a generous people, to live like we believe the gospel is true. To live in the image of the God who created us. Now I think when we think about our lives, when we think about our relationship to God, when we think about the generosity of God, really there's kind of three, and this might be a broad oversimplification, but just bear with me, three kind of views that we can take on this reality, you think about your stuff, think about your life, think about your relationship. All these, there's three kinds of views that we can take on these things. The first is what I would call a view that says I've got to earn it, right? A view that says I've got to earn it. And so, when we ever, whenever anyone talks about generosity, whenever anyone talks about giving, whenever anyone talks about any other subject in the Christian discipleship realm, loving your neighbor. Um, you know, being committed to a church family, um, you know, loving your children, any, anything, you know. we view it through this earning it mindset and you say, okay, that's right. God has been generous to me and so now I've got to pay it back, right? <laughs> I, I've got to appease a God who has made an investment in me. Or, better yet, I am obligated to do this. And friends, unfortunately, because of the corrupt nature of human leadership in the church setting, that kind of message of religiosity has been pushed on many people for a long time. Oh, you're, you've believed in Jesus? Well, then you're obligated to a whole lot of things, right? And, it, and for, unfortunately, it usually starts with the offering box. And that's unfortunate. And, and I apologize for any of you who have been wrongly subject To that kind of authoritarian carelessness. Because it is antithetical to the gospel. When Paul is calling out a generous nature to the Corinthians, he doesn't say, Hey, God did this for you. You are obligated to do this for him. He says, I can't command you to do anything, you're under no obligation. Uh, I've preached previously uh, here about my view on tithing. If you're interested in that, you can listen to another message, but let me give you the shorthand of it. I do not believe that tithing is a New Testament concept. Uh, Many people would disagree with me, and you're free to disagree with me too, Uh, but it's something I've I've talked about elsewhere, and I'm not going to get into it. But often for many people, tithing falls into this realm of thinking. Okay, you're right, God has done these things, and I'm obligated to give him 10% of everything I've had. And so you do that, you write that check, you put that money in the, in the box, you give that money to, to uh, Child Fund or Compassion or World Vision or something like that, and you say, we're good, right? I've done my part, you've done your part. And the unfortunate reality that I would say to you is, I don't think you've ever really understood the gospel. It says God has set you free in Jesus from the need to appease Him. He loves you. He does not need 10% of your money to buy His love for you. He does not need your perfect church attendance to assure His continuing love for you. He loves you from now to the end. It's who He is. He's a generous God. So in any way that we've oriented our lives towards trying to earn or manipulate his affection towards us, we haven't understood the gospel. We have not understood the gospel. I wonder how many of us, though, have this kind of mindset. That most of our discipleship patterns in trying to follow Jesus to honor him with our lives are oriented around the notion that I am obligated to do this. And you wonder why there is no joy in your pursuit of Jesus. Because you are simply paying a debt. And in so doing, saying to yourself that the debt that Jesus paid for you is really only a partial payment, and I need to fill in the rest. Uh, There's a famous story in Luke's Gospel about a man who was trying to earn it. It's the story uh, that's often called the rich young ruler. Do you remember this in Luke chapter 18? A rich young lawyer comes to Jesus uh, and he says, teacher, good teacher, and Jesus is like, why, why do you call me good? Like, there's this whole discussion going on here. But he says, teacher, tell me what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you're a careful and observant reader, you know that he's missed the whole boat simply by his question. Right? Teacher, what must I do to have the good life, to have the life that I've been created for? And so Jesus, knowing that he's off base, begins to ask him questions to help him see that he's asking the wrong question. And Jesus says, well, follow the commandments. Don't murder anybody, don't lie, honor your mother, your father and mother, all these things. And the rich young ruler, and I don't think he was lying, I think he was telling the truth, said back to Jesus, I have done all these things and I've kept them perfectly. Now amongst these, as a perfect uh, Torah-obedient Jewish person, would be tithing. He would have given 10% of what he had, and quite frankly, in the Old Testament covenant, he would have given 23% ultimately through all the different tithes and temple taxes and whatever, of what he had. He had given then Jesus says something that's going to cut his heart wide open. He says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, is Jesus saying that you can't own anything if you want to have eternal life, have this life that God's called you for? Of course not. He's exposing the wrongness of the question that the rich young ruler is asking. You can do nothing to earn the generosity of God. And so even in the depth of his giving, the rich young ruler never understood this concept of generosity because he never understood the generous nature of God towards him. It was something he was earning by what he did. How many of us, when we think of what it means to be generous, view it through this lens of earning it? In essence, we pay our gospel tax in our generosity, right? Sounds silly to say it, and yet we live this way. The second way that sometimes we will view the world, and I'll share a personal story in the midst of this, just so you don't think I'm exempt from any of this, right? Is what, what I call entitlement, right? So sum this up with, it's my stuff. I worked hard for this stuff. I should do with it what I want to do with it, right? Entitlement. And guess what? For most of you, you have worked hard for it. And you probably should have more than what you have because of your hard work. But it's a way of viewing the world around us, right? A way of viewing it. Uh, Fresh out of Bible college, right, this highly mature spiritual individual named Adam uh, took a a youth pastor's job at a church church. And served there for two and a half years. And do you want to know something about my generosity to that church? I never gave them as much as a penny of my stuff. Why? Because in my mind I was employed by them. And so my efforts towards them was my great generosity towards them. You can laugh, this is silliness, right? But we and it's not because I said, well, hey, I shouldn't have to do this, it's just because my mind was warped and how I viewed what I had and what I did, right? I felt like I was entitled to this. After all, they weren't paying me barely anything. You know? this, is why, this is the way I was viewing the world. You know? After this sense of entitlement, this is, this is mine after all. It's mine. Someone once said, and I think this is so beautifully true, that the truth of a clenched fist certainly is that you will not have to give up what you're holding but it also is that you cannot receive what God intends to give to you. I'm sure I missed out on a whole lot in my sense of entitlement. There's another sort of subset to this reality of entitlement. It's what I call religious or gospel entitlement, right? It's very easy to go here. So we say, yes, the gospel has set me free. I'm under no obligation. No longer do I have to appease God. And this is a beautiful reality. And so then... I can do whatever I want with my life, right? It's very easy to go there, isn't it? Well-meaning, well-intended, celebrating the truth of the gospel. It's very easy to take a a wrong turn and say, oh, so then I can do whatever I want. I can mess up. God's going to forgive me. Absolutely true. I can do whatever I want with my money. God's not going to strike me with lightning. I think that's probably somewhat true too. But we have misunderstood the gospel if we've made ourselves oriented that way. Because yes, you have been set free from any need to appease or please God. But the generosity of God, if you have really understood and experienced it, changes everything about how you view the entire world, including the fullness of your life. Your life is no longer oriented around yourself but now is oriented towards God and therefore towards the things that God cares about. Namely, this world and other people. Right? And so if your step right after embracing the gospel is towards self-control, and what I would suggest is so keep celebrating the freedom of the gospel. You better keep telling yourself the gospel too because you've only understood it at a surface level. The story that we read earlier, that Jess read for us, speaks to the sense of entitlement, does it not? Jesus, of course, is telling a parable. It's not a literal, literal person, but we all know these people. And Jesus probably knew them too. A man who is wildly successful, beyond perhaps what he even expected. And he has this massive harvest. He doesn't even have any way to contain it. And so he says, I'm going to build more silos so that I can hold on to it. The problem is that God had always said in the Old Testament that, hey, whatever is beyond what you need, you should leave for the foreigner, for the alien, and for the poor. Right? Jesus isn't just picking on this person because he was wildly successful. He's showing a heart reality here. Entitlement. And then there's this third view and some we taste this, but we kind of almost never really get here. And this is, a, this is the true gospel view. And that is what I call, we've been entrusted with what we have. Do we earn it? Are we entitled? Or, or have we been entrusted? And if we really believe that, that every part of us, our money, our personality, uh, our belongings, our talents, if we really believe that we've been entrusted with them, then we would be geared up and oriented to steward them in the way that God would steward them. Right? It goes all the way back to what we said about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, how they were meant to rule over the world. But if we believe we've been entrusted with them, then we will steward them in the way in which the one who has given them to us would steward them. So Let me give you two counter examples to the two examples I shared a minute ago. I talked about the rich. Excuse me. I talked about the man uh, who built the silos in the parable that Jesus said. Actually, there's a story in the Old Testament of a man who built a bunch of extra silos because he had a huge harvest. Do you know this? The man's name is Joseph, and he's undergone a tragic life story. Some of it is his own doing, if you read it rightly. Um, but he understands through a dream that there's going to be famine in the land and God enables a great harvest in Egypt and Joseph builds extra silos so that all of these things can be stored up. But not stored up solely so that the Egyptians and Joseph can withstand a famine, but so that the nations of the world can come and be rescued. It sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? That is a view of being entrusted. Or, there's this little guy who climbs up a tree to meet Jesus. Remember his story, Zacchaeus? Remember him? We're told he's a wealthy man, and he's a wealthy man by the most corrupt means possible. Right? He's in bed with the Romans, collecting taxes, and adding a whole bunch to the tax so he can have this great lifestyle. He's extraordinarily wealthy. He meets Jesus. He desperately is trying to find Jesus. He sees him, and and Jesus says, I'm going to come spend the night with you, Zacchaeus. He meets Jesus, and as a response to the generosity he finds in Jesus embracing him, this is what Zacchaeus says the next day. I will give away everything I have because of this. I'm summarizing, but you get the point. This is radical generosity. A man meets Jesus and his whole way of living is radically changed. His whole manner of living, everything he was about was to obtain, obtain, obtain. He would do it in the most corrupt ways because his highest purpose was to have as much as he could. Suddenly when he experiences the gospel in its truest sense, it changes him radically and he says, I'm going to give everything away. Everything away. Now, the story is profound. But I do believe, as followers of Jesus, as people who have met a generous God and have been generously rescued by God, that we are, in fact, called to radical generosity. Radical generosity. There's a few things I would want to say about that. The first thing is that radical generosity understands that the gospel changes everything about how we live our lives. Everything. And so what I want to say to you is that this is not a sermon solely about money. This is a sermon about what it means to be radically generous in loving your neighbor. To be radically generous in forgiving people who have wronged you. To be radically generous in opening your home to strangers or to people who need space. To be radically generous in your praise for people. This is something I'm learning in my life even now, right? I'm, I'm German. That's my excuse. I'm not sure what your excuse is, but it's hard for me to be effusive in my praise. Right? We just kind of work hard and do our own thing. But no, I'm lacking in generosity in that way, right? In every single aspect of your life, children, to be radically generous in your obedience to your parents. Parents to be radically generous in the way that you lead your children. Employees to be radically generous in the way that you carry yourself at work. Employers to be radically generous in the way that you treat your staff and the people underneath you. When we say radical generosity, it says that the gospel has changed everything about how we understand and live life. Now listen... Money is part of that, right? Because we have two ways of obsessing about money in, in when pastors want to talk about money, right? And if you've been here for any length of time, it's like the second time in five years, but here we go. There's two ways we obsess about money. The first is, well, he's just talking about money. Does he understand everything else? Or the second way is, well, hey, that's right, I can do other things, so I don't have to worry about money. I can be radically generous at work, and so I don't have to worry about the money thing, right? No, that's part of it, too. This is not a sermon about money. It's a sermon about radical generosity. But your money is part of what you need to be generous with. Catch it. Second thing, radical generosity plans and is disciplined in order to be generous. Right? I would. I'm going to have the the highest view of all of you. Right? And say, I think all of us want to be generous, but we find ourselves lacking the space to be generous. Because we have not planned and been disciplined in order to be generous. Joseph, when the famine struck, had silos of resources for the nations to receive. He didn't say, oh man, I should help these people out. What am I going to do? I don't have anything. He planned, right? And so the same way with our money. How, How can we plan to be generous with what we have? with our time whatever amount of time so I know some of you like my life and my wife's life and my family's life is extraordinarily busy i'm not telling you you have to quit your job so you can be generous with your time but you can say what time do i do have and how can i be intentionally generous with my time some of you have bigger houses some of you have smaller houses it doesn't matter the size of your house you say how can i be intent- how can i plan to be intentionally generous with the house that God has given me? We all possess different personalities and different talents. How can you plan to use the unique things that God has given you to make you you? How can you plan to be generous with those things? Radical generosity believes it so much that that we plan and are disciplined in order to pursue it. Third thing, radical generosity views wealth not through what we don't have, but through what we do have, right? Radical generosity views wealth not through what we don't have, but through what we do have. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthian church here. Verse 12, For if the willingness is there, the gift is accessible, acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Most of us are prone to view what we have. I'm talking much bigger than money here. Talents, abilities, stuff, whatever. Time. Most of us are prone to view what we have through what we don't have, and therefore say we don't have enough to be generous. Rather than saying, this is what God has given me, and though it may pale in comparison to other people, this is what I'm called to be generous with. Two examples in the scriptures. One from Paul will talk about here in 2 Corinthians 8. First is the church at Philippi. This is the church that Paul writes the letter Philippians to, and he speaks to them about having the character of Jesus because in many ways they get it and they understand it. One of the main reasons that Paul writes the letter of Philippians is to thank the church at Philippi for sending him money regularly. Paul is writing this from house arrest. And so he's imprisoned, but he has to rent a house. Like the worst reality ever, right? And the church at Philippi is paying for the house. They're sending him money regularly. And you look at that and you think, "Ah, oh, that's fantastic. How could they do that? And I was reading about it a little bit more this week, and I come to understand something I'd never understood before. And that's that said, at that particular time in history, Philippi was one of the most impoverished cities in the Roman Empire. They actually did not have much. And yet, out of what they had, they were supporting Paul in a moment of great need. Why? Because they were radically generous. In the same way the churches at Macedonia, Paul is going to talk, talk to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8 about the churches at Macedonia. Go all the way back to the first verse in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, hey, now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. Do you hear this? First of all, when have those two things ever been said of someone, right? in the midst of their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, welled up rich generosity. Why? Because the joy trumps the poverty. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations as they gave first to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Macedonian church is a stunning example of radical generosity. Now there's two things that are going on here that we need to think about, right? The first is that they pled with Paul for the privilege of giving. Do you notice what's going on here? Paul says they would not be denied the chance to give. So we don't know this for certain, but here's how I would understand what's happening. Paul, when he's trying, he's, this is a concept, he's trying to gather a large offering because the Jewish church, or excuse me, the Jerusalem church is struggling. He wants the other church to help the Jerusalem church that is struggling. Paul's trying to gather this big offering for them. And he looks and says, well, the Macedonian churches, they're in even worse shape than the Jerusalem church. So we're not even going to ask them. Right? We're not even going to ask them. But they hear about what Paul's doing, and they get in touch with Paul, and they say, hey, we want to be involved in this too. Why? Radical generosity. right?' And Paul probably thought, man, I almost robbed them of this chance to bear the image of God to the Jerusalem church. Second thing he says, not only did they plead with a chance to do it, but he says, they gave beyond what they should have given. Amazing. Now, we don't know what that amount is. could have still been a very small sum of money compared to other people who gave in this big offering Paul was taking. But Paul's saying, wow, they gave not only to this thing, he says, but they also gave to us. What is he saying? Not only did they contribute to the big offering to the Jerusalem church that Paul's taking, but they also contributed money to Paul for his missionary journeys. They gave way beyond those realities. His radical generosity does not view wealth by what you don't have, views wealth by what you do have. And the last thing I would say is that radical generosity sacrifices and often foregoes personal desires in order to be generous. Radical generosity sacrifices and often foregoes personal desires in order to be generous. This is the picture of the early church in the book of Acts, right? Who time and time again, we hear stories of, they sold their possessions to help those in need. They literally took things that they had and sold them to help people in need. Making very real sacrifices. Foregoing personal desires. In order to be radically generous. Why? Because God made great sacrifices. And Jesus forewent his personal hold on divinity. In order to be radically generous. So I ask this morning, as we kind of think about this, listen, this is to me probably even more than to you, right? What does this mean for us? If if we are really people who have been rescued by this generous God and this generous gospel, the way we talk to each other about, then are we called to something more in the way we live? Are we called to be radically generous? Not because we owe God. Not because, well, he did this and I better do something for him. Not to sort of seal the deal for what God has done for us. That stuff's all taken care of. None of this is obligation. Paul says, I can't command you to do this. But do we believe that the things of God are actually far superior far more important than the stuff of earth. And therefore, we become radically generous people for two reasons. One, because we believe in the manner we live our life, we profoundly tell the story of the God who created us. Your neighbor is far more apt to become interested in a generous God when they see a generous neighbor as opposed to when you knock on their door and say, let me tell you about the generous God I serve. Right? You might not do that, but you get it, right? Our words are not the means by which we are going to show who God is. It's the way in which we live our lives. And because we believe that the things that God is rising up, the communities that we're part of, are geared to accomplish the things that He's intending to accomplish the stuff of God more important than the stuff of earth. This is why we're generous. Not so that we can be the most generous, not so that we can prove ourselves to God, but because the gospel has changed everything about how I view this world and how I view my stuff and how I view myself. I love what Paul writes to Timothy, who's a young pastor in a church at Ephesus. And this is what he says to him, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold, listen to this, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What does it look like to enter into generosity? Paul almost gives a four-way path here, doesn't he? First thing he says as you look at your life is you need to evaluate what your hope is in. Are you like me? I'm a pastor. Like, I've given my whole adult life to this gospel thing. And yet, the percentage of my hope in this world unfortunately outnumbers the percentage of my hope in God. Right? God still loves me. He's not. But if we're just being honest with each other, right? Paul says, hey, teach them to evaluate their hope. Talk to rich people, and I think he meant most all people because poverty was intense in the same way he would look at a church like this and say yep they're all rich he would talk to rich people and say where is your hope is your hope in what you've accomplished is your hope in what you can accomplish with what you've amassed is your hope in what you've done your performance your provision or is your hope in god and the second thing he says, then believe that God, he's, listen to what he said, God richly provides what you need for your enjoyment. A fascinating way for Paul to say this, right? What he's ultimately saying is, what you have, you've gotten because he's enabled it. And the call into generosity is not a call for you to become so poor that your life is miserable but it's for you to share what God has blessed you with. And then the third step, he, says, he boldly says, hey, go be generous. Tell them to be generous in good deeds and in sharing all they have. Right? So what we talked about in the faith talk about taking a holy risk. Friends, at the end of the day, a step towards generosity is a holy risk. Right? It is. He says take a holy risk. And then the fourth thing, and this is the most fascinating to me. He says, and in so doing, take hold of the life that is truly life. Now we're catching a glimpse of something here, right? Because Jesus has said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Right? Jesus said, I've come to give people a, not only just life, but abundant life. And what he's saying is when you begin to live In light of the way, in light of who God is, and it begins to order how you live around the world, then you are actually beginning to take hold of the life that you were created to live. Let me summarize it in Jesus' own words in the book of Acts. It is better, more blessed to give than to receive. Generosity is a better way of living. And when you take hold of it, You begin to see it as it ignites your faith and proclaims the image of God to the world around you. This morning I ask, what does it mean for you to be radically generous? Not just with your money, but with all of your life. What does it mean for you to understand that the gospel changes everything about who you are and how you live. What does it mean for you to plan and be disciplined now in order to be generous? What does it mean for you to define wealth not based on what you don't have but on what you do have? And what does it mean for you to sacrifice or even forego personal desires so that you can be generous? A generous God calls his people to be a generous people. Friends, ordinarily I'd stop and pray right there, but I'm going to give you a quick caveat. If you're visiting with us, I'm glad you're here, and I'm going to let you listen in on a little family conversation right now. If you're a regular part of Hope, I want to speak to you about radical generosity for a minute. Because it would, as the pastor here, and as someone who's trying to be radically generous in and through Hope, it would be irresponsible for me to not do it. I believe for all of us who call hope our spiritual home, we have a responsibility, not a commandment, to be radically generous in and through Hope Alliance. With your time, with your talents, and with your stuff. Including your money. Not because we keep track of it. Not because you're required to by some covenant you've signed. You guys know that's not true. Not out of obligation. There's a reason we don't pass offering plates ever here. Because we don't want anyone giving out of obligation. But if this is something you believe so strongly that God has called you to, then you believe and agree with what we're called to do in this world. And therefore, you need to join us in being radically generous with your finances, with your time, with your talents, with your home, with your swimming pools for baptisms, with your cooking abilities for gatherings, with everything and anything that defines who you are and how you live your life. And church, this church must be radically generous to this community and the world around it. With our time and with our talents and with our money. It's why the leadership of this church, and I'm proud to be part of it and honored, for those, honored to speak on behalf of those who are part of the leadership here. As we look towards a budget again for next year, have said significant percentages of anything that comes to HOPE financially goes right back out to the world around us. 10% to missions around the world of everything that comes to us we give away a significant amount of money to the district that we're part of with the Christian Missionary Alliance. So ministry can happen all across eastern Pennsylvania. A percentage that goes to church planting and ultimately to plant a church in the coming year in Nazareth. That's part of a big dream that we have church, to plant churches all across the Lehigh Valley. We don't want to get one big church. We want to have a network of lots of thriving churches. We can be generous radically because you are radically generous with us. Family conversation over. God has called us all to be radically generous. And yet, even in the ways in which we have been stingy with our time, our talents, and our treasures, the radical, generous love of God is unchanged towards you. Can I pray with you?